This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Tuesday, February 11th, 2020. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. If I could rebut one notion... It is that Donald Trump is a brilliant brander. Brilliant with the nicknames. I mean, there's Adam Schiff, who he called Little Adam Schiff. And there's Bob Corker, who he called Little Bob Corker. And back in the primaries, maybe you remember this, there was Marco Rubio. What did he call him? Little Marco, Little Marco. And there were also some others. Little Rocket Man. Little Marco. And they have Little George Stephanopoulos. Well... He's branched out and maybe developed a focus group and done some brainstorming sessions, hired an outside consultant because he has a new nickname for Michael Bloomberg and he's gone with Mini Mike. Huh? How's that? How's that for a variation on a theme? And with West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, Trump went with, you ready for this? Joe Munchkin, Munchkin. Although... By calling Joe Manchin, Joe Munchkin, it left, unlike the presidential sports coat, a little opening. Well, first of all, the Munchkin, I'm taller than him. I think I'm a little bit bigger than he is. Not heavier. He's much heavier than me, but I'm a little taller than him. So I guess. All right. Let me just go back and say after that clip. So that was Joe Manchin on MSNBC. Manchin is six foot three. Trump is listed at six foot three. Might be six foot two and a half. But as Manchin says, the president is quite stout. At one point noting, I'm bigger than him. This is Manchin about Trump. I'm bigger than him. Of course, he has me by weight now. He has more volume than I have by about 30 or 40 pounds. Oh, good. We're going by volume now in Washington among two of our three branches of government. We're going by volume. And you know, when you think about it, I guess with all the folds and the jowls, Trump could also win in terms of surface area. Trump probably resents Joe Manchin for a couple things. One is for being named Joe Manchin. That would be a great name in terms of real estate branding. Donald Trump, that's okay, but Joe Manchin. Joe Manchin, if if Trump himself weren't Joe Manchin, Joe Manchin sounds like a typical Trump client. All right there, Joe Manchin. We'll get you one of our top-of-the-line exclusive residences as part of uh, Trump Chattanooga Golf Course and Estates. All right, easy there, Joe Manchin. For the president to mock the size of a man who is Trump's actual height, but 
has a less inflated BMI than he does is poor strategy for the president. Trump can brag about wealth, penis size, and the girth of his record-setting electoral win, which he called the biggest since Reagan. It wasn't. Okay, he said, I meant the biggest by a Republican since Reagan. It wasn't. But those brags are all gauche or misleading or unbecoming for someone occupying the office. But they do flatter Trump. This little insult. I mean, if it's only about height, I mean, well, that's pretty obvious. It is unbelievably shameful to be shorter than the towering figure of Donald J. Trump. But if we're talking about waist size or flabbiness, I do not think the president wants to play this game. So based on my research, some self-reports, I've estimated the size of the people that Trump has called little. Uh, Bloomberg, actually, that's official. That's out there. He weighs 165 pounds. Manchin, according to him, saying he's 30 to 40 pounds less than the president. I put that at 215, and that's generous. Trump weighed over 240 in his latest physical. Shifts about 180. Bob Corker, 160. Marco Rubio, a little heavier than that. This means... That if you took the five politicians that Trump most often called little or mini, they collectively are outweighed by five Donald Trumps by more than 300 pounds. And that's a lot of Trump. So that's some really great branding, sir. Sirs, I guess we say sirs. On the show today, I spiel about Elizabeth Warren, who will likely be the poorest performing Massachusetts candidate in the history of the New Hampshire primary. But first... So on this program, we talk politics and policy and comedy and culture. Why? Well, because we want to, because we like it, because it gives us pleasure. But we've not really talked about pleasure, women's pleasure. And when so many in the audience are always clamoring for me to personally plumb the depths of the female libido. Mike, when are you going to talk about the issue of female pleasure? The answer is now. Catherine Rowland is up next to analyze the pleasure gap. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So in surveys, a tremendous number of women, American women, claim, and I believe them, that they are unsatisfied sexually. But even the question of what unsatisfied means, that is a question. The name of the book is The Pleasure Gap, American Women and the Unfinished Sexual Revolution. The author, who's with me here, is Catherine Rowland. The cover looks a little like uh, the Rolling Stones' sticky fingers, but, you know, it doesn't have the pullouts (laughs) flap. Hello, Catherine. Thanks for coming in. Hi. Thanks for having me. So describe the project. What was the project? What was the undertaking? My inspiration for writing this book came from following the debates surrounding female Viagra around 2014, and these efforts to create a rival cabinet of pharmaceutical options for women to sort of parallel all the myriad options we're told that men have to boost their arousal and performance. Mm -hmm. Um, And at the time, pharmaceutical lobbyists and researchers were saying this is really an issue of equity, that it's an injustice and failure on the part of medicine that women don't have 
equivalent options. And that was really interesting to me as someone with a background in medical anthropology and public health. I was curious to know, well, how are they defining women's low desire and sexual problems? And how are they evaluating these, measuring them and proving that the services and compounds that they were trying to take from bench to bedside actually had impact. So it's like a little like listening to Prozac. Let's take a major pharmaceutical. Obviously, it's telling us something about society. What is it telling us about society? Right. And, you know, I was really fascinated by the fact that if you just look back a couple decades ago, let's say the 1950s, this feminine ideal wasn't an appetitive woman. She wasn't a woman who was fueled by lust and eager to have sex. She was sort of complacent and would have sex within um, these normative bounds of marriage and with her husband. But suddenly, let's say around the 1980s, these standards started changing and women um, were seen as losing their appetite for sex. And that was deeply troubling. So what changed? Was it actually that women's appetites changed or was that the sex that women were expected to have was changing? Or maybe, you know, it was just this huge amount of suppression and denial in the 50s. And so what we thought was, okay, now this is the honest reckoning of the 80s. It wasn't really honest. I mean, there was just a bunch of open questions. I mean, no period in history is going to be honest with regard to documenting the quote unquote nature of sexuality. And I'm certainly not saying (laughs) that the norms in the 1950s were healthy or good. Ours currently may not be honest, but it's certainly copious. It's absolutely copious, (laughs) for sure. But what's so striking to me is that despite the copiousness of the present, is that you hear all these women reporting that they're not actually enjoying this libidinous moment that we're living in. So why is that? And so what I did for the book is I went around the country. I talked to about just over 120 women and dozens of sexual health professionals of all stripes, from biological researchers to therapists to kind of fringe practitioners who work directly with the genitals to get a sense of what is the problem here and how are women going about addressing it. And I do not in any way in the book endeavor to provide a solution to how one crosses what I'm calling the pleasure gap. If anything, I try to provide an unprecedented roadmap into this world of booming options that are now available to women as we're turning increasingly to the market to understand how do we fix our erotic woes. So if we say pleasure gap, the implication, I mean, the resonance is with the pay gap and the gap between men and women. But as your book points out, we shouldn't assume necessarily that, you know, men are the standard or men are experiencing such great pleasure either. Absolutely. I think we overestimate men's sexual function and enjoyment and we oversimplify men as sexual beings in the world at the same time as we underestimate female sexuality and overcomplicate their desire and pleasure. Which gets probably right back to Viagra. What is the solution Viagra was solving? They branded it erectile dysfunction. So it's getting an erection and achieving orgasm. Boom. Viagra assumes that men are always willing. There's Mm -hmm. just something faulty around the mechanics. And I think the pleasure gap, though, importantly, is also this rift between what's taking place in women's minds and what's taking place in women's bodies. And that's really where you see these desire issues playing out, because there's no part of human physiology that links to desire. It's not housed in blood flow. It's not housed in hormones. It's maybe vaguely associated with certain neurochemicals but that's really open to debate. And so desire kind of lives in the imagination. How do we then treat it? 
Okay, so is, I'm not going to say problem, but a psychological issue. Is Viagra solving a physical issue for men in a way that it is impossible for a drug to solve the issue because it is not a physical issue? It is a psychological issue. I think that's what researchers keep on coming up against. Mm -hmm. And because they, Pfizer certainly tried to find a way to get Viagra to the female market. And what they found is that they would give it to female test subjects, and it would lead to increased blood flow in women's genitals, but that had no relationship with their desire for no sex. No relationship. And so people keep on trying to identify what the biological equivalent is in women and have really come up short. It's very hard to know this, but how much is women comparing themselves to the ideal societal message versus if you were to just isolate the physical properties going on in the body. So how do you decouple that? I don't think it's possible to decouple that. I mean, nothing that we do exists outside of culture. And so those messages that we're absolutely bombarded with are affecting how we physiologically respond to intimacy. Mm -hmm. You would think that there's been a lessening of prudery and a loosening of restrictions. So you would think the latest messages, I mean, it is called sex positive. That's supposed to be better. It's not always. I think it is better. I mean, some research suggests that women were perhaps more orgasmic in the past. That's interesting. How would they know that? Uh, right. Well, one, how do they know that? Yeah. How on earth did they know that? And I think that... It's in the fossil record. <laughs> <laughs> Carbon dating. <laughs> you think Tinder dating's hard, right? <laughs> I think they reach these conclusions by looking at, say, medical advice that was dispensed right. eons ago and how couples were encouraged to mutually titillate one another. And if you go back far enough and look at the Greeks, some historians suggest that the whole concept of conception was inseparable from mutual pleasure. That if women, as the Greeks supposed, were this inverse of men, then just as men require, regenerate the species through ejaculate, women are also required to release female seed in some orgasmic release. Right. While not true, you could see why it would be better for better sex. Absolutely. (laughs) But I think we come up against today is this odd tension because in so many respects, female orgasm and female pleasure are more visible than ever. They're more publicly discussed than ever. You know, I was just thinking about how there are whole investment firms right now that are just devoted to channeling funds into female satisfaction enterprises and, you know, to have a whole sex text section of the consumer electronics show. I mean, this right. is sort of unprecedented attention here. Yeah. I think one question that arises from that is that sort of changing women's expectations. Do they look at the surrounding landscape and think, well, my pleasure should be a given. So why aren't I experiencing it? What's wrong with me? And so they are unduly concerned with something that's actually not an issue. Right. Or is it that we still have rather limited understandings of what pleasure and relating should look like, and that is limiting women's ability to fully engage with the range of pleasure available to them. Right. And when we default to letting marketers define it for us, the whole point of marketing is to feel like I'm not right because I'm being left out of something. Right. I'm horribly broken in some way. And unless I'm 
you know, squirting or continually ravenous for sex, there's something fundamentally wrong with me. And I think it's the combination of aggressive marketing and also aggressive medicalization these days that comes together to create this sense that there's not just something wrong with me, but it's an affliction. It's either a biological malady or a psychological condition that I'm suffering from that I need to solve. Did you find that the ubiquity of porn is affecting especially younger women? I think porn is really affecting everyone across the board. A lot of the younger women that I spoke to reflected that they felt a certain pressure to be okay with porn, um, even if they weren't. A number of young women, I will say, use porn themselves. Some had a somewhat ambivalent relationship towards it. But it was really this sense that they needed to be embracing of porn and kind of be nonchalant, whatever about it. Whereas older women often felt a bit more discomfort with porn, particularly older women who were married and who were aware that their longer-term, typically monogamous partners were viewing porn because their sense was that their partners were getting off to images of much younger women. Well, you get to another, I think of the most tangible action item in the book. And the thing you ask us to think about is the prevalence of sexual assault could be having a big impact. And it's underreported. And you also make the point that there are things that we wouldn't report as sexual assault, but are you know, some people might call them microaggressions. You add it all up, that is another factor that could very well be getting in the way of uh, women's pleasure. Absolutely. And why that isn't the first action item on our agenda, I think, reflects a sort of social failure of imagination and the continued deprioritization of women's health, safety, and just general quality of life. Yeah. And it seems to me, from as the kind of person said, okay, what are the findings? What could we do? That seems a lot more tangible than some of the other things you're talking about. Yes. I think making that a priority in terms of public policy and funding and really thinking collectively about how we move from a culture of endemic harm to one of shared healing, where we're not necessarily just pitting survivors against perpetrators and victims against assailants, but thinking about how we are all systemically subject to a culture that is hypersexualizing and objectifying and denigrating bodies and making these conditions possible feels very urgent. I went into this book being really versed in a lot of the sexual harm and assault literature, and I felt, to be frank, deeply unprepared for the volume of stories that I heard, for the depth of trauma that women had experienced. And I really came away thinking that the statistics that we tend to have in circulation grossly underrepresent the reality of the problem. I would surmise that societies with more sexual assault have less pleasure, and the other is true. I'm just not exactly sure which direction the correlation flows. I think they move back and forth. I don't. Mm-hmm. I don't know if one is necessarily feeding the other. I think it's sort of a they they grow mutually. Yeah. And so where do you think this is going? What's the, are there, were there any bright spots? Were there any takeaways that you could give to people to give them a little more hope for their own pleasure? Absolutely. I mean, one of the biggest bright spots that I saw was just women's capacity for pleasure that sort of all these women that I talked to who at some point in their life reported that they felt broken, that they felt, to use their own words, frigid, that they felt like 
all of their desire and interest and even their life spark had been utterly depleted, shared stories with me about having gone through this process of compassionate and curious self-learning and really emerged on the other side to experience pretty inspiring states of ecstasy and self-knowledge and pleasure. Um, And part of what started fueling me as I worked past a lot of the darker sections of the book was this question of just how much are we capable of as women? You know, wanting to talk to some of these women being like, well, can can everyone do that? And Mm -hmm. often their response was, gosh, well, if I can, then this is available to anyone. So just understanding that we learn pleasure. One quote I particularly like from James Faust and his fellow researchers was that our erotic body maps are not etched in stone. They really change with how we learn. And if you think about orgasm and different states of pleasure as kind of carving channels in the mind, you can see that as you learn to experience orgasm through different modes of interaction or kind of experiment with different forms of play, you expand your range of what it's possible to feel. That's interesting. It's all interesting. The name of the book is The Pleasure Gap, American Women and the Unfinished Sexual Revolution. Catherine Rowland is the author. Thanks for coming by. Thank you. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. And now the spiel. By the time you hear this, New Hampshire will have voted, and if the polls, the prognostications, and the betting markets are correct, Elizabeth Warren might come in third. But between September and November, so it's really only three to five months ago, Warren led in seven of the nine New Hampshire polls that were recorded by Real Clear Politics. And if the senator from Massachusetts can't win or come in a strong third in New Hampshire, it's quite doubtful she'll catch fire or gain momentum in any of the next two contests or on Super Tuesday itself. So what happened? Well, I have an explanation. My explanation isn't particularly earth-shattering, but I do end with an insight that literally is earth shot now. It's a, it's a condolence of sorts for big Warren fans, but it is a cold condolence at best. So here we go. Warren, by the way, she could stage a comeback. Let us not write her obituary just yet. But Warren's fall had a proximate cause, which was that her Medicaid plan was scrutinized and criticized by Pete Buttigieg primarily. But she also, the fall had a general cause. And the general cause was that she was vying for the votes of very liberal Democrats, but was doing so against Bernie Sanders, a candidate who had those voters in a bear trap. Sanders was not going to be out-liberaled, outflanked to the left, as they say. And Warren came off as a less than compelling choice for the many moderates who were running. And by the way, the process revealed that there are many more moderates in the Democratic Party than, say, Twitter would have you believe. So to be fair, Sanders and Warren's support sloshed around for a time like water in a balloon. But in the end, his crest was her trough, or maybe you just want to say that her trough was his crest. But I think it's more of a credit to Sanders than a demerit for Warren. 
I also think that it wasn't just the ideas of the candidates that made him elevated and her diminished. It was the tactics of their supporters. Bernie Sanders has many wonderful, hopeful supporters online and in real life who are guided by the promise and the vision that he represents. But he also has a small but prominent rear guard of shock troops who are absolutely vicious in their fervor for the man. Elizabeth Warren does not have that. Her supporters are less likely to go scorched earth. And in the end, she could not lay claim to the biggest patch of that part of the party. She had so many plans, plans that ranged from interesting to implausible to performative to ridiculous to compelling. In the history of politics, having reams of detailed plans was never before seen as the path to popularity. And I've got to say, it still isn't. It's not fair to punish a candidate for being thoughtful and detailed, but since we are playing in the briar patch of politics, where it's well known that you could prick your finger on the thorn of detail and never recover, you might question why a candidate thought that she could win through position papers. For a time, it seemed just crazy enough to work. Now it seems just crazy. Warren was also absolutely hurt by sexism. People think their fellow Americans are sexist. In an Ipsos poll, 33% of voters said they believe their neighbors would be comfortable. So 33% said they'd be comfortable with a woman in the Oval Office. 74% of people said I'd be comfortable, but in predicting if fellow Americans would, they'd say no, two out of three would not. It goes beyond that one survey or that one sentiment. Gloria Steinem notes that men gain power as they age, you know, wealth status. Women lose power as they age because their worth is often tied up with looks. This is a problem in politics where power is accumulated through years in office or by being Pete Buttigieg. Beyond this, we don't have to say if a woman per se had an extremely uphill battle because really we've only been testing our theory with a certain kind of woman. That is the kind that Hillary Clinton and Elizabeth Warren are. Ivy League grandmas with law degrees. It's a pretty narrow slice of womanhood. I would bet that if Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez were to run, she would do really well. She can't. She's too young, which means, by the way, it's literally in the Constitution that women can't legally engage in the process when they are at what Gloria Steinem calls their most powerful. It's not right. It's not fair. It's not Elizabeth Warren's fault, nor is it anything she could overcome. But here's where I promise the silver lining, the cold and not especially comfortable silver lining. The Democrats' number one priority, every poll says, is what? You know, say it with me, beating Trump. Senator Warren might at best come in third in her neighboring state. She's an extremely long shot in all the contests ahead. But if she couldn't do better within the Democratic Party, which has more women than men, which has millions of people who actively try to resist acting in sexist ways, which, by the way, is not anti-abortion, How is she going to do in the general election? Some Democrats might have a harder time in the party than in the general, maybe a conservative Democrat or one who clashed with the DNC. But Elizabeth Warren was not such a Democrat. She, in terms of policy, she was a Democrat's Democrat. And if she was fated not to get the most support or not even the second most support, it does make a compelling case that she would not have done well against Trump. And rightly or wrongly, I think we can agree the process shows she wasn't the best candidate to do the thing that is ranked number one among Democrats among the things they want done, which is beating Trump. So that's the comfort. It's the kind of comfort along the lines of telling 
A grieving person at a funeral, oh, the deceased is better off. It's good that it happened without too much suffering. I acknowledge in the history of grief, no one hearing that was ever actually cheered up. It's just a thing that you say to get someone else through a tough time. It also has the virtue of being true. I guess I am engaging in a form of obit of doing an early eulogy in some ways. I hope I'm wrong, but in the end, we're better embracing the truth, even a cruel one. And that's it for today's show. Priscilla Alabi is the GIST's associate producer. She has squared her radius and multiplied that by a third of her height to determine that she has less surface area than the president would if they were both smushed into conical shapes. Daniel Schrader, the GIST producer, has a gap in the pleasure he takes from listening to that interview to the amount of glee he took in knowing how uncomfortable I was doing that interview. The GIST. Perhaps an ancestor of Donald Trump was actually asked to do branding on certain intellectual properties. Well, Anthony, I enjoy your work and the Imperials are great, but to me, you'll always be little Anthony and Louisa May. I mean, it's a book about women, women, women. What's so special about regular women? How about little women? Laura Ingalls, you may have a house, you may have a prairie. I know real estate. It's a little house on the prairie. And that obnoxious, blonde, rich brat, Nellie Olson. She's right out of central casting. Oomperu, depperu, dupru, and thanks for listening.